We continue our study of Romans this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, uh, what many consider, and I, I, would, uh, I would include myself there, one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament. And I'm thankful for the way that Jim read it, and, and we're going to, uh, to press our mind in it after we ask God to bless us in the study. Uh, just a reminder, if, if you're new with us, inside of that announcement sheet or the bulletin, you'll find an outline that you can use uh, to follow along as, uh, as we make some points and draw out some teaching. Let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> as our brother has already prayed, Father, we do fall before your throne of grace. We are humbled Father, by, by this text in, in such a way that we understand that, that there is no place for boasting. That what You have done, Father, You have done in Your righteousness and in Your faithfulness. And we are the recipients of an inexpressible gift. A, 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 a gift beyond our human abilities not just to, des- to describe it, but to even understand it in the fullest of its depths. And so we pray, Father, in the silence of this moment, in this time of teaching and of listening and of hearing Your Word, Father, we pray to do faithful business with this revelation from, from Your Spirit. And so we ask, Father, in the name of Jesus, that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray all of this with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul asks a pretty important question at the end of the text that, uh, that was just read by Jim. In light of all of the things that Paul in the previous section has done to describe the human condition, and for it not just to be seen in terms of, of, of a paganism that, that is not recognizing God, but recognizes other gods, to those that in terms of idolatry see themselves as the way that they get into heaven through their own morality, or those that that even because they have been given the Word of God and the commandments of God and the law of God and have been called by God and have the law and have the prophets and have Moses, he asks an important question. Verse 27, where then is boasting? That word that Paul uses, that we translate as boasting, is a very curious word. It's kaukaumai. And when you say it uh, uh, quickly, it kind of sounds like a a rooster crowing early in the morning. And it's a word that describes, really, what you do when you're calling everybody's attention to what it is that you've done. Calling everybody's attention to to your glory. You're calling everybody's attention to the things that you have done. It's what victorious soldiers did on a battlefield. Look at what I've conquered. Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've, I've done. This kind of boasting is not a good idea. Uh, growing up, as you know, my brothers and I, we played a lot of sports, and one of our favorites was wrestling We were very passionate about the sport. We were also very fortunate to wrestle at the right place at the right time for one of the better schools in the mid-Atlantic states. Our senior year, we were undefeated. Everyone was kind of gunning for us. We were wrestling away one Wednesday night. 
And as we got off the bus that night and went into that, that, uh, that, that gym away from our own hometown, we began to encounter some students who were getting there kind of early to see the wrestling match. And as we were walking through the hallway, they began to say things that you cannot repeat on a beautiful Sunday morning. And they began to talk about what their team was going to do to us and, and, and you know, how bad we were and said things about our families and these kinds of things. They were taunting us. And they were mocking us. And they were boasting. Well, we had a, a great we had a great couple of coaches who said, you know, when you go through these hallways, here's the deal. When we wrestle away, you talk to no one who doesn't, you know, that you don't know from your own school. And so we didn't say anything to him. We just went into the locker room, got aggravated a little bit, changed, went out onto the mat, uh, cleaned their clocks. And I'm not boasting. <laughs> But uh, we, we just looked at each other. We got aggravated. I think we won every match that night, got back on the bus, and split. The point is, their boasting was empty. Now, I know you're probably trying to figure out which one I am up there. I'm the guy that's, uh, that, that's top left. Long hair and all that good kind of stuff. But that was us. And their boasting was empty. They were not going to beat us. And that kind of boasting is very inappropriate, uh, inappropriate when it comes to the matters of God. Remember what I said last week. The gospel is bad news before it can be good news. Let me say that again. The gospel is bad news before it is good news. Listen again to what Paul has gone to great lengths to say through the first two chapters. Chapter 3, verse 9. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of, say it, church, sin. Look down at verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the, say it, glory of God. In other words, Paul is saying human beings are in the straits of spiritual helplessness. Now, there is a reason why Paul begins with the bad news. The, the gospel is a beauty. But it is seen in, in it, it's, it's, its greatest beauty in the truth of who, of, who, uh, of who human beings are. Now, you know that we, we lived, Ellen and I and our kids, we lived in Brazil for a number of years. And Brazil is a beautiful place with beautiful people. It's a nation known for its beautiful gems. And while we were living down there during that period of time in the 1990s, you could get them relatively inexpensively. And so when we would have friends or family that would come down to Brazil to see us, they would want to shop for them. We would take them to see our friend Marcos, who owned a, a gym shop. And spread out on a soft black cloth, he would lay out all of these gems or jewelry. Why the black cloth? Well, you know, it could be to, to protect them from being scratched, but they're diamonds. They're the hardest substance. It could be for any number of reasons, but the reason that Marcos was doing it was to bring out the beauty of the gem, to bring out the beauty of the piece of jewelry. Now again, this is in essence why Paul describes the hopeless spiritual condition of humanity. What Paul wants is for the church in Rome to see the gospel as a beauty that everyone and everybody needs. And he does it by laying it against the background of man's sweeping atrocities in God's good creation and human feeble and competent spirituality. He says in verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 22, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. No one is righteous, not even one. No difference between Jew and Gentile. And just when you begin to get the picture, 
and it's bleak. It's like going out in the middle of the forest in the winter to try to find food. Just when it gets bleak and hopeless, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been made known. And what Paul is going to do in these 10 or 11 verses is to talk about the beauty of the gospel, and it begins with God's righteousness. Again, verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Verse 25, He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. Next verse, 26, He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time. Now the emphasis at the beginning part of this text is God's righteousness and what it means and what it means for us. Now righteousness, even if you've gone to church all your life, is a slippery word. It's kind of hard to get a firm grip on at times, but key to understanding what Paul is driving at when he, when he speaks of the gospel is to understand the righteousness of God. Now again, when you hear the word righteous, what a lot of people in the world think of is some holy roller who thinks that they're better than everybody else and they're miserable while they do it. But there's more to it than that. Righteousness describes God's character. In uh, verse 25 or verse 26, it talks about being God is just and the justifier. Righteousness describes God's character. It's where He is just. It is where, where God is consistent with His holy nature. That He does not do anything that is outside of the holiness that is at the core of His nature. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, the writer that writes this letter, known as Hebrews, recognizes this and says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter, a, a righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated what? Lawlessness. So righteousness describes God's character. Righteousness also describes God's actions. He's not just just, but He is the one that justifies other people. He is the justifier. Now, when you think about the way that the word was used in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy, for instance, it dealt with faithfulness to a covenant. A righteous person is one who lives in such a way that they honor and uphold and live according to the stipulations of a covenant. They are living rightly or in a right way when it comes to this agreement, this relationship that, that has been ratified and has been agreed upon by two different parties. An unrighteous person, on the other hand, lives and acts in such a way that destroys the relationship. I mean, think about it in terms of a marriage. You have two people who have entered into a covenantal relationship with each other, having made vows and exchanged rings and saying, till death do us part. Now, the righteous in that relationship, are going to do what it means to be married. All of those vows, all of those vows to, to love, till death do us part, uh, for richer or poor, sickness and in health, prosperity or poverty, all of these things, whatever was said in that agreement, the righteous person is going to live according to that, to be faithful and, and, and to be singular in their relationship, that kind of relationship to their spouse. The unrighteous person is going to be the one that does not live according to the vows that they have made. That they're going to introduce conditions into it. They're going to do the things that break the trust or break the loyalty or break the relationship by breaking the vows and breaking the covenant. And so that's, that's, that's one of the ways that God is described as righteous, that He is the one who is faithful to the terms of the covenant that He has made to His people. 
And when the Bible talks about being made righteous, it means that somebody is being restored to the covenant. And so over and over again in Deuteronomy, Moses is telling the people that it's not because of their own righteousness, because they are faithful in every instance of the vows that they have made to God at Mount Sinai and after that, that they are now entering into the promised land. In fact, for the last 40 years, that was a sign to them that God was righteous, but they were not when it came to trusting Him and going into the promised land. But God has made them righteous by restoring them to covenant and allowing them to go into the land. And another place in the Old Testament, Psalm 98, the Lord has made His salvation known and revealed His righteousness to the nations. To sum it up, righteousness describes who God is and what God does. The God in the Gospel is re-expressing His faithfulness to His creation and to His creatures by providing the way by which it may re-enter into relationship with Him. Do you know why God did not destroy all of humanity and all of creation when sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3? Righteousness. Do you know why you're here this morning praising God and expressing to Him your gratitude and thankfulness for all of your sins being forgiven, for His Spirit being put in you, to be put into a fellowship, to be given life, to be blessed, and all of the different ways that the Bible talks about the people of God being blessed. Do you know why that's happening for us this morning and every day for the rest of our lives? Because of God's righteousness. God could have destroyed everything. But, verse 25, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In his righteousness, there is a holy restraint. And instead of destruction, chapter 1, verse 24, he gave them over instead to sinful desires of their hearts. It's what we talked about last, last week when Augustine talks about how the sin that's in the world and the sin that we experience and the sin that is perpetrated on us becomes the punishment for sin. But because God is righteous, He will act in such a way to restore and fulfill the covenant. We hear the word righteous... And we think of some merciless judge and some killjoy that's just waiting to pronounce you're wrong and you're dead and you're out and you're destroyed. That's what we think when we hear the word righteous. Paul uses it in a different way. Paul says in God's righteousness, He will love us even though we are still sinners. In God's righteousness, He will save us in such a way that nothing, not even sin, can separate us from Him again. Because God is righteous, He will re-invite humanity into relationship with Him, even if it means leaving heaven Himself to deliver the invitation. Because God is righteous, He will remove the fear of death and the malignant lordship of idols in our hearts. Because God is righteous, He will re-establish Friendship with Him. Because God is righteous, He will restore us to that covenant. How can this be? 
I mean, how in the world is God going to be able to do that, especially after he has, Paul has talked to such great lengths about the depravity and, and how we as human beings, there's, there's not everything there is to know about God, but there's at least some to know about His power and about His nature. And yet we choose to suppress it, to stand down on it, to keep it behind us, to, to pretend that it doesn't exist. Or to choose some way back to God that doesn't involve Him, but involves us. Now, how in the world is that going to happen? I mean, when we try to think about it with our own finite minds, I mean, at some point we just get to the place where we go, well, you know what, we just got to, we just got to say it doesn't count anymore. It just doesn't count anymore to sin. It, does, it, it doesn't mean anything to sin. We're just going to have to tolerate it. We're just going to have to pretend to, to live with it, you know, to have our chins above some level in order for there to be this, this relationship established with God. How can it be so? How can this happen? And that's where we come in Paul's thinking to Christ's sacrifice. In all the history of the world, what Paul is talking about, that the gospel that he preached and all of the apostles preached, that gospel presents an unheard of approach to God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In your Bibles, underline in Christ Jesus. You know, what we put our faith in is more important than our faith. We'll talk about that more tonight. But sometimes we can even turn... You know, human, human beings are so ingenious when it comes to idolatry. We can turn our Bible into an idol. We can do the same thing with our faith. We can use our faith in such a way that it excludes God. But what we put our faith in is more important than our faith. Is what Paul is saying in chapter 3, verse 22. Now, an illustration of this that came from the readings, I want to adapt it for our own purposes this morning. Suppose... I have bird feathers glued all over my arms to make them look like wings, or maybe I put together some kind of contraption that I can strap on that gives me wings. And suppose that I have this unshakable faith that I can go to the top of the Tower of Americas and jump off and fly to Boutique. Is my faith placed in the right place, yes or no? No. But on the other hand, suppose I get up early in the morning, i got to fly to DFW, and I hate to fly. And, and I, I can be so nervous and fearful of that flying that at times i got to take a Valium before I can just barely get on the plane. And yet, the object of my faith, even though it's just barely, the plane, will it or will it not accomplish its purpose? Yes. It's not my faith that saves me. It's what I put my faith in. It's the object of my faith. Paul would say in another place, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In Romans 3, Paul will say, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of what, church? Atonement. Through the shedding of His Blood to be received by faith. Christ's crucifixion accomplishes the impossible for you and me. 
The cross of Jesus shatters that resume theology that we think we've got to have. We put together our resume, listing all of our qualifications and accomplishments from the past. We hope nothing on this resume disqualifies us. We hope that everything on it validates us, and we present it to God and say, I'm qualified, choose me. We are not and will never be qualified for the holiness of His kingdom. In verse 22, he says, this righteousness is given. This righteousness is given through faith and it is not earned. Uh, Verse 24, all are justified, what? Freely by His grace. This is why boasting about ourselves is so vacant and oblivious and shallow and senseless. It divides humans over trivia in the eyes of God rather than unite them in all humility. It's the worst case scenario of self-deception. To be blind to our own eyes. Thankless for the price paid for our redemption. It's whitewashing our anxieties. When we boast, and that thing becomes threatened, then we have anxiety. We feel threatened. And when what we boast in is threatened, so are we. You know, the, the, the cross of Jesus was hinted at all over the Old Testament, all kinds of places. One of the most important was in the life of Abraham, who Paul, Paul will pick up on in the next chapter. We're going to look at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 tonight. As you know in the story of Abraham, because you've read it, God has promised to make Abraham a great nation. And, and Abraham is, is just a guy like all of us. He's trying to make his way in the world. He's trying to, to, to raise a family. Abraham is just a guy like us, and he begins to feel a little anxious when he and his wife begin to struggle with some issues of infertility. It just brings up some major anxiety into his life. But God has said that it's going to happen along with all of these other promises back in, in chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 15, God, God shows up and says, it's going to happen. And in the Hebrew, he's just emphasizing, it's your wife, your wife, Sarah. She's going to have this child. And, and Abraham looks at himself, and he, and he looks at his wife, and he knows that, that he's, just, he's just getting old. And he's looking at his wife, and she's not getting any younger. But the Bible says in verse 6 that Abraham believed, meaning he trusted. He had faith in what it was that God was telling him. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And then God tells Abraham in verses 9, 10, and 11, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram and a dove and a pigeon, and I want you to cut them in half, and I want you to, to separate the halves so that the halves are facing each other. And in the evening, there's this smoking pot and there's this torch that appears, which, without going in, into a lot of discussion, I, it's, it's the presence of God. The smoke and the fire. It's the presence of God. And God, from the smoking pot and the torch, says that all of the promises that I have made to you are going to come true. And the presence of God at that point then passes right through the middle of those pieces of, those, of the, of the cut-up animals. Passes right through the middle of it. And only God passes through. Now what God is doing is making a covenant. 
He's saying, basically, everything that I have said to you, Abraham, is going to come true. And if it doesn't, may all of these things that I have said, if they do not come true, may all of, all of the, the things that have happened to these animals happen to me. It's not going to be a cooperative project. But God has said, trust my word and have faith in me. If God does not come through on His promise, if God does not come through with His part of the promise, then what will happen to, to Him is what has happened to all of those animals. And we think, yeah, right, God is going to let that happen to Him. But centuries later, the whole world, as you know, has just come unhinged again. And human beings are not living according to, to, to God's will. They're not living according to covenant there's polytheism and people that are not recognizing God, uh, the, the creator of the universe. There are people that are trying to get in because of what they do, their own self-righteousness. There are those in other parts of the world that are saying, I just, you know, it's, 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 it, I'm better than this guy down the street. But instead of humans getting the wrath for the broken covenant, God takes on the curse for humans in Jesus. That's why he goes through by himself back in Genesis 15. He's basically saying, I'm going through for the both of us. Which means that he is righteous and just, but it also means that he is a justifier. And God takes on the curse for humans in Jesus. And, and we think about the cross. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He is just standing on the brink of the cross. And in that moment, because of the anxiety, because of everything that is on top of Him at that moment, He is sweating drops of blood in His prayer. He is praying, God, let the cup pass from Me. And He does this, and He does this, and he does this, and finally the betrayer shows up as he's gathered together with his disciples. The betrayer shows up, one of his own. And he's he is betrayed by a kiss. One of the most intimate acts when your lips touch the flesh of another person. Betrayed by the kiss of a friend. And they drag him away, and it begins to be a time of torture. He's repeatedly struck in the face and beaten, just open-handed. People are they're standing in line and taking turns to, to hit him in the face. He's, he's lied about. He's falsely accused. He is spat upon. He is, he is mocked. He's dressed up like a fake king, and they, they make fun of him, and they mock him. And they, they take the staff out of his hand, and they begin to strike him with the staff. And in this process, he's taken to one high priest by the name of Annas, and then after that, he's taken to Caiaphas, who is the acting, the de facto high priest. And then he's taken to Pilate, and Pilate sends him to Herod, and he goes back to Pilate. All the time, the Sanhedrin is involved. There is a, a growing unrest in the city of Jerusalem. Finally, Pilate says, there's nothing that I can find that's wrong with him or that deserves any of this death. I don't know why you've torn your clothing. He's not done anything deserving death. But then in Rome, the thing to keep was the peace. And things are beginning to get out of hand. And so Pilate says, you know what? I'll scourge. I'll punish him. You know, the Jewish uh, folk had, had some 
some sensibilities about it. Forty. Pharisees show up and say, we don't want to transgress that law, so we'll subtract one. Thirty-nine. But it's not going to be the Pharisees. It's not going to be the Hebrews that are going to scourge them. It's the Romans, and the Romans like it. And sometimes they never made it to crucifixion. The way that they died was at the scourging. Sometimes it was they just beat him to a pulp. They beat him to a pulp. The most sensitive man who ever lived. And they drive him into the stones. And then they drag him back out in front of the crowd. Your king. And the crowd says, we'd rather have a murderer. And Jesus is delivered to be crucified and He tries to pick up His own cross, but He has been beat to a pulp. And he has been, He's just been tortured and spat upon and the emotional and physical trauma you and I cannot even begin to imagine. And they strip Him down completely. And they don't tie him to that cross. In their ingenuity, they say, why don't we make a really big spike and we'll drive it right through his body? It'll go in one side and come out the other, pierced for our transgressions. And he is stripped and he is nailed to the cross and he's lifted up in a horrific pain. This most tender and sensitive man who ever lived is surrounded by outrageous hate and scorn and abuse. And and towards the end, he cries out to God the words of Psalm 22, verse 1, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Well, they think he's crying for Elijah. There was kind of an urban legend swirling around at that time that that Elijah, who had never died in 2 Kings chapter 2, was taken up in a fiery chariot, that he didn't die, that he would come and he would rescue God's oppressed. They go, he is crying out for Elijah to come and save him. So what do they do? They give him the the, the wine vinegar. It wasn't anything to dull the the, the senses. I mean, in, in, in... when somebody is is on the verge of 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 dying, and you're trying to extend their life, prolong their life, what do you do? You give them something to drink. So here he is on the cross, crying to God, and they give him a drink to prolong and extend it, to extend the pain and the cruelty, and the brutality in order, as Matthew tells us, to see if Elijah would come and save him. And there's darkness on the land. And at the apex, the zenith of human cruelty, at at, at the apogee of what humans can do to another human being, let alone God Himself, Jesus dies for our sins. Jesus takes the curse so that we can have the blessing. The God who is righteous is making us righteous. 
by making sure that sin is paid for so that He is just. But that we can find reconciliation by being made righteous in Christ Jesus, thus just being the justifier as well. Boast? Boast? Before that kind of God? To stand in front of that God and say, look at what I've conquered. Look at what I've achieved. To stand before that God and say, here's my resume. Hire me. I think not. Praise is the order of business. For the greatness of His mercy and the fact that He is righteous in restoring us to covenant with Him. We'll talk more about that tonight. But Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. It's a song of praise. It's a song that recognizes the greatness of God. That our God is great. We sing it with all of our lung capacity and with, with everything inside of us, with all of our strength. Because God is great in what He has done. For us to be forgiven. And for us to find our way back into a relationship with Him that makes us His children forever and ever and ever. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front as well. If there are ways that we can minister to you, any way that we can minister to you, come down and talk to these shepherds. Let's praise God together. Let's stand. The splendor of a King Hold in majesty Let all the earth 